This is Creepy and Geeky. I'm your host, Robert, and today's guest is Tim Coleman. He's the editor and host of the podcast and website, Moving Pictures Film Club. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. How are you doing? I'm doing all right today. How are you doing? Yeah, I am doing well. Thank you. All right. Well, today we are talking about Quentin Tarantino. This is actually going to be our first episode in the Quentin Tarantino series uh, that I'm doing. And uh, we are starting off, of course, with the two movies that you know launched him, and that's Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Mm, um, indeed. Both of these movies, uh, they had quite the effect on me. Um, when they came out, 1994, when Pulp Fiction came out, I had not heard of uh, Reservoir Dogs before I heard of Pulp Fiction. Mm. And I was 20 when uh, Pulp Fiction came out. So it was, it came out right at the right time to hit an impressionable uh, young, like film lover. And, and I had heard that it was coming out and then, but you know, in all the you know press that was coming out about it, They'd been talking about, oh, well, you know, this is the second movie by this guy. And his first movie would like, you know, was a huge, like not hit, wasn't a huge hit, but it was like what put him on the map. And yeah. so I went back and I found Reservoir Dogs on uh, VHS and bought it and wore that sucker out until, yeah. uh, until Pulp Fiction came out. Amazing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so for me, it was like, I don't know, his movies those two movies kind of changed my you know, views on film mm. in, in a way that just kind of opened my eyes up to what film could be. I guess I'd, I'd, it's kind of hard to explain, but yeah, it just, mm. it was formative for sure. Mm. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can really identify with that. I remember seeing um, very similarly, I saw Pulp Fiction first on uh, VHS rental. So that would have probably I've been 95, I guess, like because back in the day, films yeah. would take a little while to get to rental. Um, nowadays, films are at the cinema and they're out to buy on DVD and Blu-ray in about four months. But like I remember back in the day, you'd wait like a good six months for VHS rental, and then you have to wait again like another six months to a year to, to be able to buy it. So there was this kind of oh, yeah. painful delay of getting your hands on things. Um, but yeah, so I... I would have been in 95, I would have been 14. And I remember our family rented it. And I just, yeah, watched it with my folks. And it felt like, kind of like you just said, it kind of caused somebody who's kind of discovering cinema and like is, is already a film fan, but like perhaps it really opened my eyes to what cinema could be and reinvented and played with... um the form in a way which I personally hadn't seen before. Like I'd not seen a non-linear narrative before I saw Pulp Fiction. Um, and 
yeah just things like the structure of that film how cool it was its use of music it just really yeah my i felt like i'd been awakened to something you know oh, um yeah. yeah for sure and then yeah went back oh, yeah. and fa- found out reservoir dogs after after pulp fiction <laughs> yeah no that's definitely that's 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 definitely a good way of putting it, it was it, it was an awakening of like you know because up until then of course i was a i was a movie fan uh i'd Mm -hmm. I'd grown up you know luckily you know my parents were um fairly unrestrictive as to what i could watch i wasn't like i i could watch r-rated movies i I grew up in the slasher era of the 80s and Mm -hmm. you know i got to see most of that stuff uh here and there we had we didn't always have hbo but we had it on occasion um and so we would record things uh so we had we had a huge tape library every tape had like three movies on it and yeah you know, we it was just like and it would be the most random mixes ever and mm-hmm. it was it was just like whatever came on so we'd just record a bunch of stuff so it, it was so i got to see a lot of movies growing up but it wasn't until 94 when mm. um, uh pulp fiction came out and when you know, uh, Kevin Smith's uh, Clerks came out, and that was kind of a weird yeah. one-two punch for me. And yeah. there was so much of a, I don't know, they they both hit me right at the moment. And there was a time where I really wanted to be a director after mm. that point and wanted mm. to really make movies and stuff. It didn't go anywhere. I went to college for a little bit to try to do it, but uh, um, it just it didn't form for me but yeah they they still had such a lasting impact on me that um it's it's just i don't know it's hard it's hard to hard to like describe unless you were in that moment like you said like you mm. you saw it and just you know it's one of those things that hits you at the right moment right age and everything to mm. to kind of change your life yeah definitely i mean, i think for me it was like the first time i'd seen films which felt like it was made by somebody who also loved the same films I loved, you know, like mm-hmm. um, Tarantino, of course, famously worked as a video store clerk. And so mm-hmm. it's really like, you know, the movie clerks, I think is a really good comparison point where um, one of the main characters in that film, Randall is a video store clerk. Yeah. And yeah. Kevin Smith himself worked in a, you know, a, uh, 7-Eleven style convenience store. So it felt like, this is a film which was made by someone who was just a little bit older than me, but loved film, would watch a lot of films, was really uh, into the kind of fantastical rhythms of dialogue. Like um, yeah. both those films are incredibly written. Like, um, and of course Tarantino became more more established, I guess, as one of his big MOs was this kind of rat-a-tat, uh, super fluid, super cool dialogue. Um, I mean, that, that's of course the opening scene of, of, of Pulp Fiction, um, I think in the in the screenplay is it's described that those two characters, um, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, are talking in a rapid fire His Girl Friday style, right. and, so, and so even in the way that Tony would write his screenplays, where he's referencing other films, um, <laughs> yeah. And so I think yeah, seeing those kind of films which are very self aware, made by young hungry guys um yeah it felt like an absolute shot in the arm for somebody who was perhaps more uh certainly at my age i was i was watching some horror stuff as well like my family were quite liberal 
as it sounds yeah. like yours were like I oh, yeah. you know, stuff like John Carpenter movies and James Cameron movies and that kind of thing were already part of my regular diet but um but like you know early 90s particularly 94 that was the year of Forrest Gump of course uh where it, it stole the Oscars from superior films like Pulp oh Fiction yeah and Shawshank Redemption oh, yeah. and like no yeah. no yeah well, i mean what a year don't no get me started to... on that man because like <laughs> seriously like like don't get me wrong i i, I think that forrest gump is a good movie it's yeah, just yeah. when you put it up against both pulp fiction and shawshank redemption they it, it just doesn't hold and i'm like no. what was going on that year so yeah. that's that's kind of where i lost like and i didn't have much respect for the uh the academy at that point either but that's a I, that was a seminal moment where i just was like okay this is this is a joke right these movies are so yeah. much better and even my 20 year old brain knew those movies were better so yeah, yeah that's ridiculous yeah. it is ridiculous um i think it kind of speaks to that really interesting contrast though between like i mean i quite like forest gum still like the last time i saw it anyway yeah. i haven't seen it for quite a long time but it, it's a very wholesome very i mean it's about as middle of the road as you can get i think in terms of yeah. wide-ranging appeal um and then you've got you know pulp fiction which is this kind of counterculture super violent super sweary confrontational yeah uh like indie movie um and so i think in that context it felt like yeah it, it felt like um a literal shot of adrenaline to the chest much like mia wallace yeah. gets administered in the middle of that movie it felt like you were being just, uh, yeah, like shaken out of your Forrest Gump, like <laughs> malaise and, and woken up. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that was it. <laughs> it's just so hard to quantify just how game changing Pulp Fiction was and to see it lose so much to Forrest Gump, which, like you said, is a very middle of the road very safe very wholesome movie in so many ways mm. and i like it don't get me wrong i i, I love forrest gump mm. uh for the most part there's there's bits mm. i don't like but for the most part i love it but pulp fiction was such a game-changing moment and you know you don't you don't have a lot of forrest gump imitators you got mm. a ton of pulp fiction imitators everybody was trying to imitate right. what tarantino had done in the wake of that and right. you know most if not all were unsuccessful but mm. you don't start a movement like that and like just dismiss it and mm. you know but that's why i'm just like okay the award shows are just you know they're they're just fake you know nobody cares <laughs> they don't yeah. know what they're doing I mean, it doesn't stop me having that emotional buy-in, though, when there's a film that you care about. Like, I remember being really energized from Parasite one a few years ago and being like, oh, cool. You know, I know yeah. I know, it's all political and everything, and it's not, like you said, you've got to take it with a big old fistful of salt as to whether <laughs> the, the best film actually wins every year. But uh, oh, yeah. I, I do like it when you have those moments where something which is a bit more transgressive or subversive breaks out and yes. gets gets recognized. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I was glad to see that at least, you know, when it came down to it, that uh, Pulp Fiction did win for writing that year. And yep, so, yep. you know, and that was a very important win just to show that, you know, sure, these other, this other movie may have won, but Pulp Fiction is really the better win, better written mm. movie. And mm. so, yeah, it's yeah, a, 
But uh, let's go back to the beginning. Let's 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 head back to 1992 and uh, go back to Reservoir Dogs. Uh, like I said, when before before Pulp Fiction came out, I grabbed that tape, and you have to remember that back in the day, in the 80s at least, when VHS came out, VHS was not available to buy. Uh, you mm. couldn't. I mean, not unless you had money, because every tape was about a hundred bucks each, and they mm. were they were sold. Uh, for rentals uh, so mm-hmm. only rental places were buying them and they made their money back by renting them out and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's how mostly did mostly they did it it was like the late 80s when they started making mid to late 80s when they started making tapes available for purchase mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so by 92 when that came out thankfully you know it was a lot cheaper and a lot more readily available you had a lot of the Suncoast videos and stuff like that available. Uh, mm. So grabbing that was uh, interesting. I think it was around that same time that I had also grabbed uh, another uh, Tarantino movie, uh, which was a uh, uh, true romance. Uh, mm. Although he wrote that one, he didn't direct it. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, between all three of those movies, it was like a game changing moment for me. And and. And plus you had the mythology of Quentin Tarantino himself, you mm. know, this, this, this guy who was a video store clerk who managed to write some good movies and was able to break out and direct. And, and it was the start of this, not the start, but there was this wave of indie directors at the time, including Kevin Smith and, mm. um, uh, oh man, I'm blanking now, <laughs> Richard Linklater, um, you know, uh, uh, um, Robert Rodriguez, a bunch of them that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, came together later on to do uh, four rooms. And, but Reservoir Dogs, when I got that, that was, it's, it was such a interesting and brutal movie. It's, mm-hmm. you like, I hadn't, don't get me wrong, I hadn't seen a lot, like I'd seen a lot of the big, Hollywood action type stuff up until then, uh, especially during the eighties. And this was, this was something different. Uh, this was, you know, more old school, more felt, it feels like even today, it feels more like a seventies throwback, yeah. uh, which, you know, of course is what he's meaning to do. And it's just a fun movie It between the dialogue and the, the tension and that's what I think is nice about Tarantino's movies in general. He ratchets the tension up mm. um, to such a high degree that every movie of his is just suspense the whole way through. Mm. And mm. this one was what well, this one just is a great calling card right out the gate. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah go I mean, ahead. I- yeah, just uh, I remember seeing Reservoir Dogs after Pop Fiction, um, and uh, I I mentioned I was a little bit I think younger than you when I came to these films. Mm-hmm. I was about fourteen, fifteen, and I remember my my folks turned off Reservoir Dogs about halfway through when we got to the <laughs> uh, the ear scene, um, and I was forbidden to watch it by my parents for about six months, um, and so I had about six months of just pleading them with them and begging them, and eventually. It was coming on uh, television here in the UK anyway. 
um and they kind of relented and so i immediately went out and bought it and uh <laughs> i had this like vhs box set of it where they had a few special editions here in the uk so oh, i had okay. a I had like a where edition where I had the VHS tape. You had like a Joe Cabot's little black book, like a uh, a chrome Zippo lighter with Reservoir Dogs on it, which I still wow. have somewhere. Um, and yeah, I just watched it twice in one day because I was just like, I've been waiting for so long for this film, so I just get it into <laughs> my eyes. Um, yeah, but like, I, you're completely right about the tension. I think Reservoir Dogs is an incredibly tight film and for a director who is sometimes criticized now in the latter stages of his career for being a little bit too long a little bit like someone maybe mm-hmm. needs to rein in the length of some of his movies uh some say some say i mean um but reservoir dogs is absolutely like ratchet tight and uh, again like deploying that kind of similar non-linear uh structure that yeah. I've been seeing it in Pulp Fiction, like it's a heist movie without a heist in it. Like there's this, which is an incredible idea, and you've got oh a, yeah, a, you've got that ticking clock of uh, Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, bleeding to death throughout the course of the whole film, um, and then you know the, the story about how these these criminals came unstuck, told in flashback. It's uh, I think it's for me, it's still probably. In my top three Tarantino movies, um, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's 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 definitely it's it's funny too for me. Like I I enjoy these movies. They they I probably haven't seen them in a long time. Uh, up until I rewatched them for this, mostly because I had watched them so much mm. when. I was younger, especially, you know, when I first had them, they were just staples of mine that I would put on whenever, you know, I was wanting to watch a good movie or whatever. And especially Reservoir Dogs, I'm sure I wore that tape out before even Pulp Fiction came out. Mm. Just like it just letting it wash over me every time. And uh, like, I still enjoy them. I I love Tarantino's complete filmography and everything like that but i do think that what he does now in his later half of his work i tend to enjoy those a little bit more maybe because i feel like he's a more mature Mm -hmm. filmmaker he's found his voice um and that he lets you kind of luxuriate in the length of the movies now Uh, like Mm -hmm. you said you know (laughs) whereas reservoir dogs is very tight and very you know quick that his movies nowadays tend to be a little longer he lets you sit through things he you know he mm. plays out that tension even more so in a lot of these uh uh newer movies and so i think that you know reservoir dogs being as tight as it is having the tension it does is a very good it's it's a, it's such a strong movie right out the gate uh mm. for a filmmaker that it's it's definitely one to compare to in in anything uh yeah especially compared to any of his other movies it's it just shows that even at, even from the beginning he was a, a a good writer a great director you know just somebody who you know obviously you know hollywood needed to look for in that way mm. somebody to you know shake things up and you know mm. show the the new the new guard was there mm. so yeah definitely and and somebody who 
I think was very much schooled and literate, not just in mainstream American cinema, but in world cinema as well. Because yes. we, we should say uh, Reservoir Dogs is ostensibly, if not a remake, then a very uh, a film which heavily draws on Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. Um, right. And um, certainly for me, like my way of hearing about City on Fire was through Reservoir Dogs. So they're, they're, they're kind of reverse engineering yeah. film school for uh, for cinephiles where you go, oh man, I love this. And then you read about how he's drawing down from the these uh, references, which are perhaps a bit more off the beaten track from the mainstream. Um, yeah, again, it was just really, really refreshing. And something which we hadn't seen as much at the time i don't think um in a way that had quite captured the public imagination in quite the same way oh yeah definitely yeah his um uh his film references i know he gets accused of stealing and Mm. (laughs) um you know relying on them a little too much and i think that I think that's unfair because most, if not all filmmakers steal from other movies, mm-hmm. he's just blatant about it. He's not apologetic about it. He's like, this mm-hmm. is where I got this scene. I'm making it my own and, mm-hmm. you know, take it or leave it. And mm-hmm. I think, but like you said, though, the one thing about that is, is that when he does take a scene from something he admits it. He says, yeah, this is where I got this scene. This is what I'm doing. And then you can go back and go, okay, well, that's a movie I want to go see now. And that's, yeah. I think is great about that because it's not just a, he's not just homaging a particular scene or a particular style or something and just leaving it to the audience to kind of figure it out. He's like, no, this is, this is who I was influenced by. This is what I was influenced by. And you yeah. can go back and see these movies because that's how he was as a, as a video store clerk, he had access to all the movies that were there and he enjoyed all the references and everything that came his way, including, you know, French new wave and, you know, Asian cinema and all of this that combined into this, you know, stew pot of filmmaking for him. And that's what I admire a lot in his mm-hmm. filmmaking is that he has taken on that and said, yes, I steal, but yeah. this is who I steal from. Go watch these movies too. Yeah. And that's fantastic for me. Cause he's not just going, you know, don't, don't see these other movies. He's like, no, go watch these other movies. He's yeah. such a film fan that he yeah. wants to do that. And then like owning the new Beverly cinema now in, in Los Angeles, you know, he puts out these movies, you know, he helps mm. program these, these um, showings at his theater. And so that way people are getting exposed to lots of different things that they otherwise might not even be aware of. Cause I don't think there's mm. a lot like even, you know, up until, you know, he started making it sure people in, genre circles like uh, or or um people who love film to a certain degree will know of all these movies but there's still stuff that will mm. pop up that you're just like oh okay i didn't know that I didn't even know about that movie like, i'll go check that out and so mm. i think that's what's fascinating and, and exciting about his work 
Yeah, hundred percent. There's a real, there's a real uh, kind of uh, dialogue that seems to happen between Tarantino and his audiences through watching his films, and it, it maybe harks back to that history of him being a video store clerk. That you feel like in watching his movies, you're having a really cool conversation with this this cool guy behind the counter who's saying. Oh, cool! I see you're renting out X. Why don't you also rent out Y and Z as well, and and yes. have yourself a triple bill, you know? And I, I love that that element of of getting educated. Um, I feel like we, with like the advent of like boutique Blu-ray labels yeah. now, uh, yes. with places like Arrow Video um, uh, and Severin and Screen Factory, and and yeah, there's quite a, you know quite a good number of them. Um, that they are not only like rescuing titles from obscurity, but it kind of has a similar community vibe to it where um, you'll be like, okay, I've come across this title, which I like. Um, and then there'll be like a wealth of material, like a booklet or a podcast episode or liner notes, which will kind of give you another five things that you could go and follow oh, yeah. up. And it's this wonderful snowballing effect about just falling deeper and deeper into this kind of cult film rabbit hole. Oh yeah. I think definitely if you're a fan of if you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, you're a fan of films in general, this is like kind of the era to live in right now because mm. of like you said, these boutique labels, Scream Factory, um, Arrow, Severin, all of them are doing such great work just putting out all the obscure stuff, all the all the stuff that's you know, the major labels just aren't putting out. Mm. And they're making deals with some of the major labels to put out the mm. the stuff that hasn't been out since VHS, even. And so it's it's great because if you are a film fan, if you're interested in that, the more obscure work, the more maybe foreign stuff, mm. then you have access to it in a way you didn't. Plus the streaming services, you know, streaming yeah. provides. That's what's great about streaming is that you have sure there's a ton of different streaming services and it's hard to keep up with them all but if you have a specific interest say you're into criterion movies they have a freaking sh- streaming app now so yeah you know that's that's what's great is that you have this new access to stuff that if you're if you're a physical collector if you just want to watch the movies and streaming you have these avenues now that mm. make it like you have your own virtual video store that you can choose from it's an incredible time to be alive. Like I, I kind of think back, like we kind of referred to it at the beginning of, of our conversation with like the delay of just seeing a mainstream movie from oh, when yeah. it was at the cinema through to getting it on rental through to if you actually wanted to buy a copy, you know, that, that could be a long period of time. So if you wanted something that was off the beaten track, like how much more so would the effort be to go and try and dig it out you know like to go to collector's papers or collector's fairs or oh yeah find it on mail order or something and nowadays i'm like it is crazy i can like watch an you know a bergman movie on my phone um <laughs> I, you know oh you want to watch the complete works of tarkovsky no trouble like you can have that in in your hand on next day on amazon prime delivery you know yeah. and it, it's an absolute unbridled gift to cinephiles to have the entire wealth of 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 cinema history um at your fingertips i mean all that coming with a caveat that please do keep physical media alive because although there are those specialist streaming services 
um, you know, anything that's on a streaming service is subject to the vagaries and whims and fluctuations and yeah. licensing agreements. So if you want to be sure that you actually have something that you can watch, I don't think anything replaces having a copy on your shelf. Oh yeah, absolutely. And 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 especially because you don't get the special features if you just watch on streaming. There's so many mm-hmm. movies that if you enjoy a specific movie, get it on physical if you can. You know, mm-hmm. one so you always have that backup. Like I, I'm I'm one of those people who if I love a movie, I try to get it on 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 disc. Usually, especially because if it's a newer movie, you get the digital copy with you anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I I heavily have a large a digital library as well more so than i have a physical library but a lot okay. of my horror stuff is uh through you know scream factory and through a lot of the other stuff so i've got a lot of stuff that i just don't even have on digital but if i have it on both i'll tend to watch it on digital of course it, it, yeah you know just the ease of doing that if i just want to pop the movie on and, and just watch it real quick so much easier than you know getting up going over grabbing the disc putting it in having to sit yep. through the fbi warning and uh <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and then uh you know but you know i want to watch the special features they're there they're they're available to me on disc you know audio commentary is always mm. always a great thing to be able to listen to and yeah. uh you know definitely definitely keep keep getting physical media because if, if we don't get the physical media they're gonna stop making it mm. yeah yeah, that's it. That's it. Although <laughs> I've had to put in some boundaries with myself because I have got, I haven't even counted, but it's probably something. We're in the hundreds now of discs which I've bought, haven't I? Have not yet watched. So, oh, um, yeah. yeah, like my my wife and I have this conversation where she's like, "Have you bought another Blu-ray?" I'm like, "I have bought another Blu-ray. I'm sorry," um, but yeah. So I've kind of like trying to like just bring that under control, or at least like get through the. Uh, Yes. the backlog before buying too much more new stuff oh man i like i think we're all guilty of that anybody who buys physical we're all guilty of having like a huge like shelf just of unopened stuff or unwatched yeah. stuff and it's yeah. uh yeah it's ridiculous i have several several uh movies on my shelves as well that mm. i bought like a few years ago that just have still not seen the light of day <laughs> yeah. that I really need to get to watch it at some point. But yeah, that's part of the reason why I started the podcast was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to finally get this stuff. If I, if I can, you know, break it out. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's great to have that kind of excuse. Not that we need an excuse, but yeah, to have the, um, yeah. And every now and again, though, like just when I feel a little bit bad about it, um, something will go out of print and I'll be like, oh, I'm glad I picked that up because oh, I don't yeah. have to worry about it now, you know? And yeah, yeah, that's it. It's a fine line between being overly materialistic and actually preserving the art form that you love. Um, and oh, yeah. There, there's that sweet spot in the middle. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, uh, I'm i actually doing after this Quentin Tarantino uh, uh a series of episodes i'm actually moving on to doing a, a kevin smith series of episodes nice. and uh uh yeah it's uh it's gonna be fun except for the problem of dogma and red state uh both of those have been wildly out of print and oh okay uh, uh and a lot of his movies a few years ago i went um uh, i i used to have a big funko pop collection mm-hmm. and i sold them all off and I was using the money to help uh, kind of po- populate my uh, my movie collection a little bit more. And so I bought like a 
Tarantino stuff. I bought like I went to eBay and bought his Tarantino 20th anniversary collection. And then I, uh, I, I was also trying to find all the Kevin Smith movies because I had them all on DVD originally sold them all or gave them all away or whatever. And then, mm. you know, I had was just trying to recollect it all and dogma and red state and a couple of the other ones um, had gone out of print. Uh, oh, some okay. of the other ones, have, some of the other ones have come back into print, but dogma and red state have never come back in. So I had okay. to buy those through eBay and that was not cheap. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, yeah. dogma, dogma alone cost me $80 just for that. So, wow. Oh, for real? And that was man. cheap. So. I, yeah, oh, you're making me think because I I have um, dogma from an original pressing. I should like maybe I should be checking out how much some of this stuff is worth. But uh, not that I don't think I would sell it because like <laughs> I, I I love dogma. I think it's a very underrated film. Uh, but but yeah, it is funny. Sometimes it's the stuff you don't expect, right? Where you're like, oh yeah, uh, where I'll, I'll be like, okay, yeah, I want to just check out. I don't know, like this obscure 80s slasher that I've just read about. I'd be like, come on, man. Like, no one's talking about this film. It can't be that expensive. And you head over to eBay, you're like, all right. So it's like 30 bucks for this, like, you know, fuzzy 20 year old DVD just because it was done yeah. once and never done again. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, if you can find the stuff, grab it if you can. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if, it, especially if you can get it affordably. Because uh, yeah. uh, I, I definitely, I, I paid, I paid eighty for Dogma. I paid forty for Red State. I know Oof, I paid another okay. forty for Jersey Girl of all things, but it was out of print at the time, and I didn't think it was going to come back in print. And I think it came back mm-hmm. in print not too long later. So I was like, okay. oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but it's all right. I, I've got yeah. them all now. I've got the whole collection. I feel good about it. That's good. So, yeah, and Clerks yeah. 3 on the way as well. Yes, Clerks 3, finally. Mm. Finally getting some movies. And, and, you know, I know Kevin Smith has kind of transitioned into more of a personality rather than a filmmaker, So, but it's great mm-hmm. to see him returning back to film again. Uh, apparently yeah. he's got two movies uh, on the horizon. Uh, that one and uh, uh, Kilroy was here. So, Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned um, Robert Rodriguez earlier as well yes. as like another kind of filmmaker in a similar sort of uh, sphere as as Tarantino. And of course, they've made films together, like yes. From Dust Till Dawn and the Grindhouse, the Grindhouse movies. movies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what's your relationship like with like those kind of early '90s Rodriguez movies, like El Mariachi and Desperado and? I am. Um, I I really like them. I don't own them currently, um, but I've always enjoyed them. I I do have Grindhouse. I have the Machete movies because um, mm-hmm. uh, those are just nuts. Uh, mm. But uh, yeah, no, Rodriguez's uh, Mexico trilogy is is. It, I'm not as. I wouldn't say I'm not as big a fan, but I'm definitely. You know, he was one of those ones that his style is great and fun. But, you know, he went off and did the kids movies that did Spy Kids, uh, which was great because my kids were right at the right age for all of those nice. when they came out. So, you know, I was like, oh, hey, here's here's one of my favorite filmmakers making some fun you know, little kid movies here. Watch these. These are fun. Yeah. And uh, no, I, I really enjoy his work, um, especially, you know, Desperado, uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Those are uh, those are great movies. Um, mm. He's uh, I love Sin City. Um, yeah, yeah. You know his it, it, the work he's done with Tarantino directly from Dust Till Dawn and Grindhouse. Uh, yeah, 
Uh, I talk about those in length uh, on a on a couple more episodes uh, in this series. Uh, yeah, they're they're just they're fun stuff. Uh, he makes great movies. He's um, I ha- I've not seen uh, uh, whatever uh, what is it Battle Angel. Um, oh yeah, Alita. Uh, I haven't yeah. seen that one yet. Um, yeah, Alita Battle Angels are an interesting one. I think. It's, yeah. Uh, because I mean, in the UK, it's a, a twelve, so I guess that's a PG thirteen in the states. Okay, yeah. Um, but it feels like he got a, he got around it just by making all the blood blue uh, because they're yeah. robots. And I took my <laughs> my daughter; she was like eleven at the time to see it, and man, she was shaken because it was like people having their eyes ripped out, people being oh, wow. grinders, and I was like, "Come on, this is come on, Robert. This is just uh, you know, you've taken it as far as you can, just made the blood blue." Um, yeah. But, that's funny yeah but it's interesting because it felt like um in the early 90s there was that group of filmmakers like smith like tarantino like rodriguez uh roger avery as well as another tarantino yes. collaborator in his film killing zoe um and then in the, in the uk we had um guy ritchie in the mid mid 90s yeah. films like yeah. Lockstock were very much influenced by tarantino um and that kind of british gangster uh, subgenre that we we still kind of have, but like it was particularly popular then, um, and it, it felt yeah like there was a, those guys were all kind of playing in a similar sandbox. Um, yeah, that yeah. That I don't I don't think any any of those films topped the one two punch of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but oh certainly, no, certainly a very interesting in their own way. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's um you know as much as I, you know, as much of a Kevin Smith fan as I am, and I like Rodriguez, um, that nothing compares to, like you said, the the one-two punch of those of, of Tarantino's movies. He mm. came out the gate so strong with his movies that it was it's it's been hard to uh top in a way. And and, and I think that's like for me, like I think that Tarantino's done much better work after Pulp Fiction. Mm. Uh, but there are so many people who think that Pulp Fiction is just his masterpiece that, and, and, and I don't, I may not agree with it, but I can understand why people uh, mm. uh, think that way, you know, having gone back and rewatched it for the first time in a long time, it, it was a, it was a different experience. I, I feel like Pulp Fiction is a lot more experimental than a lot of his okay. other films uh, before or since mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're getting a lot of, you're seeing the start of a lot of his filmmaking techniques. I mean, you get some of it in Reservoir Dogs, but you get a lot more of it in Pulp Fiction. And it's it's interesting to watch it now and see all of it in in hindsight compared to you know most of the other work that he's done since. And yeah. to see that, you know, there's there's a dreamlike quality at times in. Pulp Fiction that doesn't necessarily exist in the later movies, uh, mm. and mm. I think that Pulp Fiction itself was heavily influenced by his uh, love and interest in the French New Wave, and I yes. think that's the most glaring example of it is in that movie. Just you know, he's very much more about the feel of it, and mm. um, and you know, you get a lot more of. You know, you you get the the drive with uh, with the uh, Travolta. You know, when he's you know, 
doped up on the heroin and you get, mm. you know, the, the drive with uh, Butch in the back of the cab, which is, you know, obviously projected against, you know, uh, a, a back screen. And, mm. you know, there's, there's all these weird old school film things going on in this that, you know, like I said, lended that dream like quality in a way. And Pulp Fiction feels like more like a fable uh, mm. than mm. maybe some of his other work. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. Cause I, I thought that certainly his more recent films, I think in particular of Inglorious Bastards, um, Django Unchained and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were explicitly fables. You know, they're kind of right. reinventing historical moments um, and but telling them in a way where we have a different outcome. Um, right. And but so it's interesting to kind of consider that dreamy allegorical fable quality existing right from film number two. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting observation. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that you know, I, I having watched all all of his movies, and you know, this is this is the first in the series, but this is actually the last of the ones that I'm recording. Mm. That you know, having gone through all of the movies kind of before this, and then rewatching this one last has been. That's where like it's kind of really interesting to have seen it like that mm-hmm. to compare what's come after to to this one and to see just how like dreamlike and and um not off kilter but just it's just an it's it's hard to explain because it's just you know w- watching it in that way was was a different experienced and you know most most times when you're going to watch you know his filmography most people are just going to watch it from reservoir dogs to you know straight through to once upon a time in hollywood then mm. watching it in kind of this disjointed way that i watched it you know you see you tend to see connections you see uh comparisons you make comparisons to everything and just seeing that it, it definitely pulp fiction was one of those movies that over time has you know, definitely it's become lesser compared to, you know, his other movies for myself, mm. but upon rewatch and everything, because of that dreamlike quality, because of that, you know, fable aspect of it, that you kind of see that he's kind of been making fables all along. And mm. these, these interesting little takes on because each movie is kind of a, a a genre experience in their own right every yeah, everyone yeah. has been and to see him really because whereas i think that reservoir dogs is reservoir dogs is an ode to you know the heist movie um mm-hmm. you know but but pulp fiction as much as it's a crime movie and everything it's like it's got an ethereal quality to it that elevates it beyond just a simple crime film. And like I said, mm. I think that has a lot to do with the influence, of the French new wave to him that mm. he puts so much of that kind of quality into it that it just, you know, it informs it way more than 
something like Reservoir Dogs because Reservoir Dogs is very influenced by the the, the Asian cinema at the time, you know, yeah. the killer city on fire, that kind of stuff. But where Pulp Fiction is kind of something different, it's on a different level for sure. Mm. And mm. Uh, you know, it's and it continues that, and I think that's where he continues beyond this is every movie has become something much more beyond the genre that it's trying to uh, imitate. And so, mm. you know, it's, it's, that's what I, I feel like Pulp Fiction was the beginning of that. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting observation. I, mean, I feel like um, one of the things which I love about his later films is that they dial into an emotional register, which perhaps Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs do a bit less it's not that those films aren't emotional like i don't think you can watch the final moments of reservoir dogs for example and not be moved by the re- relationship between harvey Keitel's mr white and tim roth's mr orange right. um or you know like the the gold watch monologue by christopher walken in in pulp fiction right. like i think those they do have an emotional register but i think when I I remember being just really surprisingly moved by like the very end of Once Upon a Time in, in America, sorry, in Hollywood, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and um, the if you like the saving of Sharon Tate and just being like out, just finding that a very surprisingly delicate moment for a film which literally right. has a flame a flame for a kill in about <laughs> right. five minutes before. Uh, and similarly, like my, my favorite Tarantino movie personally is Django Unchained, and that is in large part to the kind of pairing of Jamie Foxx with Christoph Waltz and Foltz's character is this guy, yes, who uh is like the antithesis of his Hans Lander character from Inglorious, um, you know, where he kills um, he kills DiCaprio's character and then just holds his hands up and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. It's a yeah. beautiful moment of just like this kind of. I'm sorry, I just, I can't stand to live in the same world as this horrendous, <laughs> this horrendous Calvin Candy. Right. I had to take him, I had to take him out. Um, and it's got this really beautiful emotional depth to, to some of those, those later films, which I don't think we get in the same way at the beginning of his career. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, that's what I say when, uh, uh, you know, when, when I say that he's matured, as a filmmaker is that his, his writing, his depth has gotten so much better along the way that, Mm. you know, he, he, his characters have always been interesting, but his characters, I feel like they didn't really become as fascinating or as deeply fascinating as they become until after, like I would say maybe kill bill and after, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And they really become after Inglorious, like uh, from Inglorious Bastards on the latter half of his career. I think when he starts making these um, revisionist uh, movies, that is where he is taking that every movie after that point becomes so multi layered uh, mm-hmm. in, in what, what you're seeing, you know, the, the various side stories, um, especially in Inglorious Bastards. Um, Django Unchained is my favorite as well. Um, oh cool yeah it's uh it's like you said i mean christopher waltz in that is so fantastic and watching jimmy fox uh watching that character uh transform throughout the movie is is just it's it's, it's so fun to watch 
Oh um, man, the, the scene where towards the end where he he begins his rip roaring rampage of revenge and he kicks down the yes. door and I think the line is something like "Tanya motherfuckers" to just like, blow those yeah. guys away. You just <laughs> I don't know the rush of adrenaline of seeing a black man destroy a bunch of slavers was so oh yeah strong. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't that that is the hype for me of Tarantino was it's violent and it's funny, but it's got a point and it's yes. it, there's a deep catharsis of seeing justice rain down. Yeah, in, I think it's his yeah. best movie. Yeah, I I I I think that you know his other movies of that era are, are so good and everything, but. Django just like you said it, it's the most violent it's the but it's it's so cathartic it's yeah it's just such an amazing movie yeah um, yeah it's great it's, uh, but yeah I mean with 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 the first two with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction you can see the seeds taking place he's mm-hmm. already at that point he's already such a good writer uh, he makes he makes believable characters his dialogue is great and that's mm-hmm. what's that's what's fun about it too is that you know he he's always written these um characters uh he's always given them these these moments where they can all just sit and talk to each other and you get to know the characters and it's Mm -hmm. in in such a believable way that you can connect with them even with some of the most despicable people that you you get lost in it but yeah you know compared to what comes later it's like it's so like to me these two movies are great, but what comes later is where where I'm the most fascinated. And mm. but going back and watching these again for the first time in a while was also great because you get to see those seeds being planted. You get to see the the everything that goes into what he becomes later. And yeah. And, and, it, it, you know, he plants the seeds in Reservoir Dogs. They take root in in, uh, in in Pulp Fiction, and they just grow from there. And it's it's so fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like they they kind of really helped establish as well part of the broader um, aesthetic, or um, I guess you could call like a, almost like a package that Tarantino brought to popular yes. culture because. Like um, I remember vividly, like the posters that you'd get with Pulp Fiction, it being like the first time that I'd seen character posters. You know, where you'd have like the, yes. the Reservoir Dogs. Like you'd have like the famous one, of course, with the the guys in the suits, uh, and then like you know, white background with blood running across it. But there was also like a Mister Blonde poster, a Mister White poster, yeah. and then like a, a quote from them, um, and very similarly again for Pulp Fiction um and, and on top of that as well the the soundtracks um and there's been oh, like yeah. one of the first time where like the soundtrack was an essential part of the oh, yeah. the uh the purchase or the or the the, the world like i mean i'm sure that many cinephiles would still buy soundtracks anyway but being able to pick up the cd of reservoir dogs i mean like track one is like um the the dj or track or or track yeah. two is is like an exit of dialogue and so you didn't just get like little green bird you know you'd get like little you get like the harvey oh, cartel's taco speech um <laughs> you know and it was so so different and so immersive and again it just felt like it really changed the pop culture landscape um oh yeah 
like you know i was i was on a a, a podcast called just for kids um recently talking about edgar wright's baby driver and how like the use of pop music in that that film really builds on the legacy and the groundwork which i think tarantino laid with reservoir Dogs oh, yeah. and and uh pop fiction you know like how many people had the pop fiction soundtrack and the first track is pumpkin and honey bunny saying you know if any of you motherfuckers move or execute every last one yep. that's one of you you know um i'm sure i got that line slightly wrong apologies but yeah <laughs> that's all right um, it's different it's different both times in the movie as well so <laughs> oh there you go i'll just i'll just pretend that that's it. i'm going for the uh unreliable narrator um but yeah just just the integration of dialogue into a, into the soundtrack and uh yeah i mean it, it, it just kind of is further evidence i think to how like Tarantino's relationship with pop culture is so reciprocal, so fluid. Um, yeah. He doesn't just make these movies; he kind of makes these kind of cultural artifacts. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the individual character posters uh, that you you saw during that time period. Um, apparently, that was and I and it was just something I read that it was something they only did for the UK market. Uh, oh, with the individual okay. posters like that. And it was the first time that any studio had done that. And so wow. now it's something they do like regularly. You get you every Marvel movie that comes out uh, has like, you know, posters of all the characters and, you know, individual things. It's something they do now, but Reservoir Dogs was the first one to do that. And so that's fascinating to, uh, uh, and especially it was mm. only done in the UK at the time. So it's that's funny so interesting. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, going yeah. going to what you said about the soundtracks. Yeah, the soundtracks, uh, especially. Yeah, I had. I don't think I had the Reservoir. No, I did have the Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I I got both of the soundtracks because you know, of course, you have to get the soundtracks. His movies are just so fun. The music, such an essential part of you know all of his movies, that you have to have the soundtracks. You have to listen to them. Mm. And, you know, like you said, you get the little dialogue bits and everything. I feel like that when you when you listen to the soundtracks you are missing a bit i mean that's what's nice about having the dialogue bits is that you can kind of in a way you know while listening to just the soundtrack you can you can kind of watch the movie in your mind uh mm-hmm. from 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 song to song but um i do feel like sometimes like for me anyway whenever i listen to a soundtrack there's some songs that I don't care for, but they're so indelible to the movie that you have to, that Mm. taking them out of the movie just feels not wrong, but just doesn't feel as essential. Like I can listen to little green bag or um, um, stuck in the middle with you outside of uh, the movie Mm. uh, because they're both great songs, but like watching, like listening to one of the other songs that's in there outside of the movie, I don't tend to do, but in the movie, he he makes the music so essential to the scene that mm. you just can't pull it out for me. And it's it's just so it, it's fascinating to to have that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I do feel I'm kind of showing my age slightly because <laughs> one of the Reservoir Dogs songs got reused didn't it by the Guardians of the Galaxy yes um, I yeah. forget what it's called it's the Uga Shaka song like, Uga Shaka Uga Shaka yeah. and uh, I know that everyone 
who is probably below the age of 25 thinks that's a guardian song but in my head i'm like come on guys it's a reservoir dog song from now right forever. yeah yeah, yeah it, pop, it popped up in the trailer uh for guardians of the galaxy i was like hey that's the reservoir dog song yeah it's gotta be and then it's like it's become so indelible to guardians of the galaxy now that it's just you know it i i will allow them to share it because i am an mcu fan so yeah I, yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah no shade perfectly. on marvel yeah no shade on marvel but uh yeah i don't know it's like if um yeah i guess i guess like reservoir dogs just means a lot to me and <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of just wanted to get credit where it does where it belongs uh i feel like james gunn edgar Wright. they're both kind of you know er, uh tarantino heirs in a way they they both mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. meld uh meld uh, uh music with uh movies uh very well um and they're both well yeah. known for it as as much now um uh, edgar Wright yeah. more more so in his more recent movies uh uh, not so much in the the Cornetto trilogy, uh, but um, but uh, <laughs> no, yeah, you're you're right actually because uh, I watched uh, Gun's Suicide Squad movie a few months ago, and oh, yeah. I mean that that's again another film which just has this killer soundtrack, which is very Tarantino esque, like it's ultra yeah. violent, oh, yeah. ultra. I don't know, like Gun has his own history with like, for example, trauma movies, so like it's not like yes. the violence is Tarantino esque, but like the use of music, it feels like right. Yeah, Gun is a yeah again just like playing in the same waters that tarantino has Absolutely. been kind of defining for 30 years yeah uh speaking of uh gun and suicide squad uh i don't know if you've seen the uh the peacemaker tv series yet uh no i hear it's excellent uh, oh it is very good yeah it's it's if you if you enjoyed the suicide squad then you'll enjoy this one i'm gonna check it out yeah um but yeah, I just with with these two movies, I, I I feel like with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I feel like you know they they they're two great beginnings. I feel like he's done much better work since um, mm-hmm. that his growth as a filmmaker and as a writer um, showing is you know along the way uh, that he just continues to grow, and I feel like that both of these movies are still great in their own ways um, and having gone back and rewatched them. It's, it's been, especially getting to watch these after I watched all the other movies uh, mm. and getting to compare that growth um, and seeing just even then just how good of a filmmaker he was in the beginning and being reminded of just that, mm. that feeling of what it was like, you know, 30 years ago now uh, when Reservoir Dogs came out that it just Mm -hmm. everything that he did was game changing and to watch that that cultural Mm. um, you know that the cultural moment uh, coalesce into what it's become now and and Mm. to see his career as a whole um, Mm. come from these two movies is is it's been it's been fun it's it's been interesting to see where he's gone with it and how things have changed how things have stayed the same and uh it's it's just fascinating amazing you're inspiring me to do a big tarantino (laughs) rewatch good yeah i was inspired by i was inspired by uh, uh by my friend uh ariel uh she she was uh she was watching or she 
mentioned something about death proof and I'd already been thinking about doing a, uh, a Tarantino series. And so when she mentioned that, I was like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So just going to do it. <laughs> it gave me the excuse to rewatch all the movies again and to, you know, uh, reach out and try to grab everybody to uh, uh, come onto the show and see, see what I could uh, see, what kind of fun conversations I could get up to. So uh, thanks again to Ariel. <laughs> amazing, amazing stuff. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's, 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 it's been fun uh, talking to everybody and uh, it's a, uh, they're just such fun movies you know i there's not to me there's not a bad one in the bunch they're all great in Mm -hmm. their own ways uh they've just all been super fun yeah no absolutely uh i should say it's interesting you mentioned that death proof was the one which uh ariel was talking about that's the only tarantino i've not seen um (gasps) uh which i know is a massive blind spot um I remember it being kind of trashed when it came out. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm not really in a rush to see it. And then like, I picked it up on DVD, like, probably like, it's one of my unwatched discs, right? I've got it, I had it got it about three years ago. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll watch it at some point, but I really need to just kind of sit down and make make the space for it because it's it's a bit ridiculous to have a, an unwatched Tarantino film on my shelf. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Definitely, yeah. Rewatch, rewatch the whole uh, filmography and definitely slip that one into the middle. Uh, yeah right where it goes so yeah no it's a it's a fun movie for sure uh you uh it's it's i use it's one of those ones that i used to think was lesser um mostly because when when i watched it originally i watched it as part of the grindhouse experience Mm -hmm. i actually got to see it in theaters and you know coming off of the high of planet terror which is Mm -hmm. like you know crazy um just nuts uh, action and, and, and fun stuff going on. And then you get into more of the, more of a slow pace in the first half of, um, of, of death proof that, you know, it's just, it's a weird come down, <laughs> like in that experience sure. of that whole thing, but watching it separately uh, definitely is uh, it's not, it's not as, it's not as jarring for sure. Sure. So, Oh, cool! I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a it's definitely a fun movie. Uh, Kurt Russell turns in a great performance, as does uh, everybody else, and that Zoe Bell. Everybody, yeah. so it's, it's it's a fun movie. Amazing, amazing. All right, uh, anything else uh, you have to you you want to mention about these two movies uh, we haven't gotten to? Uh, no, I guess just to i it's maybe an obvious point but just i think even if tarantino has made better movies since uh and for me i'm probably a little bit warmer on these two than you so for my top three would be yeah Django unchained reservoir dogs and pop fiction that would be the top three for me um but i feel like even if even if people perhaps prefer other movies that he's made there are so many iconic moments in these two films alone, which have kind of permeated popular culture, you know? So like the ear scene in Reservoir Dogs, the slow motion uh, walk in Reservoir Dogs, the Gimp scene in Pulp Fiction, like the diner scene in Pulp Fiction. Um, It feels like you, you, you know, 
certain films just influence pop culture. Oh yeah. In a way it's very difficult to quantify. Like you'll just see it in everything from like the Simpsons through to <laughs> like countless imitators. Um yes. and yeah, I, I feel like if you wanted to like you probably you probably couldn't throw a stick in the second half of the 90s without hitting a Tarantino reference in some kind of popular entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, he he definitely left an indelible mark on the culture uh, with just these two movies, especially Pulp Fiction. But uh, yeah. but both of these movies have been referenced to death and just in a way like that none of his other movies even touch. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I can't say for certain that I'm sure there are references to some of his other movies in other in other. Um, mm. uh, portions of pop culture but you know these two reservoir dogs and pulp fiction had such a a massive influence on the culture at the time and just in general that yeah they they can't be touched in terms of uh, their what they mean mm. in the in the long run and yeah yeah so yeah uh, and, and the ahead. way they talk to each other as well um, because oh, yeah. like we should say like Tarantino's movies take place within one universe pretty much um, and so like even in those first two movies it's kind of canon that uh, Toothpick Vic played by Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs is the brother of Vince Vega played by Travolta right. in Pulp Fiction um, and like little details like they all smoke the same brand of cigarettes uh, is it yeah. Red Apple? Red um, Apple yeah and uh, I, I kind of I dig that as well. Like he was doing expanded universe stuff, yeah. You know, tw- twenty years or 50, what was it like? Probably sixteen years before the MCU became a thing. So <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I kind of I, I love all that Easter egg stuff. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh, you know, I've mentioned it, uh, you know, in a couple of different episodes, but that definitely it's it. I am a big fan of. <clears throat> expanded universe kind of stuff like that um i always have been as a kid you know i grew up uh, reading marvel comic books and you know mm. the, you know it's come come full circle into the movies now where they actually connect everything in the in the movies but it's and i couldn't imagine something like that, that that's something that i would have loved as a kid that they just were not doing back then that they actually mm. finally get to do now and you know good or bad you know i love it you know i know a lot of people you know, gives them a headache, but, but I love no, the I love uh, interconnectedness too. of the, uh, the MCU. Um, and that goes back towards my, to my love of, you know, as a kid, I grew up reading Marvel comics. I grew up reading Stephen King novels. Um, mm. And, you know, later on, once I became an adult, we had Tarantino movies. We had Kevin Smith movies that are all, you know, not all, but like uh, a nice handful of them are all connected. And mm. uh, uh, Elmore Leonard, uh, books. I, I I got into him because of Tarantino uh, mm. making Jackie Brown, uh, and so he has an interconnected uh, universe of characters that he has pop up here and there between all of his books. And so that you give me a you give me a universe like that, I'm in uh, because yeah. that's that's my jam. Because I love seeing those connections and getting to follow characters from one thing to another or having references that you know it it's as a fan it's 
you get that payoff. You get that, you get that little wink and a nod to, to, to something that's bigger than just the one movie. And, you know, you know, as a casual, as a casual viewer, you can still enjoy everything and, and, and not have to, um, worry about catching all that stuff. And I think that's the, you know, I think that's a problem that people are having with the MCU is that everybody feels like they need to know all the connections and you don't. And that's, that's something mm-hmm. that I think that people need to realize is that you can enjoy the one thing they connect yeah. it for those of us that want to have all the connections and to see all that stuff. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to watch say moon Knight or, you know, or uh, the Eternals or something else like that. You don't have to watch those 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 properties because mm-hmm. it's just if that's not your thing. Trust me, like mm-hmm. Moon Knight, I watched it. It was it was good, um, but I'm not as connected to the character, so I'm like, okay, yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter to me as much. But yeah. if you want to watch everything, if you if you do watch everything, then you get those little payoffs. You get those little connections that are fun and more meaningful for you. But I think that's something that most people feel like, Oh, well, I have to watch everything to get all the revenue. No, you don't. You can, Mm. you can skip them. You can skip around. You can choose what you want to watch in that and still enjoy them. I think they've gotten Mm. to a point now making these movies that they understand that, that they, you know, you can, you can watch the newest Dr. Strange movie and sure watching WandaVision will help that, you don't necessarily mm. you get mo- you get most of the information you need from the movie, and yeah. so I think that's something yeah. that people you know don't uh, don't understand. You know, I went off on an MCU rant, but <laughs> no, <laughs> but, it's uh, all good, man. Yeah, but uh, but I but I think that's what's fun about you know Tarantino and and stuff like that is as well mm. is that you get that deeper, more fun stuff if you have watched it all. But if you haven't watched all and you're just watching one one movie here or there, or whatever, you're not going to catch those mm. things. And it's okay. You're gonna still enjoy the movies. So yeah. yeah. And they're absolutely you know, they're not as they're not as important, obviously, in Tarantino movies as, as they can be in the MCU. But you know, they can also it's just it's just fun, you know. Yeah. Just yeah, just have no, fun with the movies, everybody. That's all that's that's all that's all you gotta do don't 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 uh don't read into them too much (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's it's all good it's good all right well i uh i don't think i have anything else that i can think of that i want to mention on these movies so uh i appreciate you coming on uh i had a great time talking to you thanks man yeah i really really appreciate it thanks for having me yeah i'll have to uh try and get you on for another episode in the future Uh, cool yeah i'm gonna start doing some other directors uh stuff here and there so uh definitely have some stuff in the works amazing yeah just let me know it's been a pleasure all right well thanks again we'll talk to you later dude thanks man take it easy Thanks again to Tim Coleman for coming on this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Moving Picks Club. Next episode, I talk to Cat Hughes about true romance and natural born killers. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or at creepyandgeeky.com. 
You can follow the podcast on social media at Creepy and Geeky on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to follow me, I'm GeekThulu on Twitter and Geek.Thulu on Instagram. You can support the podcast by ordering teas and more from our Tea Public page. All of the links are in the show notes. Finally, don't forget, stay creepy. <laughs>